welcome back to the Space Hour on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White. Recently, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission released a report recommending that the Department of Homeland Security should identify space systems as a critical infrastructure sector. Such a move could help improve the nation's overall cybersecurity measures, but what else could it do to protect our interests in space? To learn more, we got a return visit from Vishnu Reddy, professor of planetary sciences at the University of Arizona. I think, you know, humanity as it evolves has become increasingly reliant on various things that we have on Earth and around the Earth, right? For example, we rely on space for everyday things like weather, banking, talking to loved ones, watching football, you name it, you know, everything, you know, even day-to-day stuff, irrespective of the national security aspect of it, we rely on space for many, many things in our day-to-day life. So, you know, having a way to take a step back and say, like, are these things really protected? And the simple answer is no, there are no cops in space. We do space surveillance for the sake of space traffic management. And below GEO, we do it for also space demand awareness uh, more recently. The difference being is that you know, space situational awareness assumes that space has a benign environment and space uh, domain awareness classifies space as a warfighting domain. Unfortunately, this is not that we seek, but it is imposed on us by our adversaries. So we're trying to at least get our hands around to see what is the threat, how do we go about securing it in a little bit more organized fashion. You know what I mean? There is always the tactical response to what's happening in space on a day-to-day level that the DOD deals with. But these documents or the studies that are being done are like kind of taking the longer view of like, how do we do it if we are not being reactive, but being more proactive? I think that's that's where this, this document that we're discussing about comes into play. And the importance of, of, of something like that is that we're trying to bring all the stakeholders together and then trying to see how can we secure the space assets like we do with our ports, like we do with our air, airspace, Uh, like we do with our roads and critical infrastructures in this country. And I think this provides a a comprehensive view of how do we go about doing something similar uh, in space. Yeah, and it's made a little bit more complicated now. You, I know that you're comparing it to infrastructure we have down here, but uh, you know, space tech is up there. What are some of the issues that we could run into in creating a mechanism for defending them both from cyber attacks and from physical attacks? Yeah, I think the fundamental issue is, like you just said, is that space is hard to relate to. It is not, you know, a crumbling infrastructure like a road or bridge that is falling apart that we visibly see. There is no visceral reaction to something bad happening that you can see and relate to. Anytime we talk to our elected officials, people in the government, it is very hard to relate to simply because even if you take them to a telescope and show a satellite or what some other satellite is doing, it appears to be so far so alien, for lack of a better word. Uh, it, it's hard to relate human in, in human scales, so to speak. And if you uh, look at the challenges we have faced with protecting space, for example, we still have the problem of even doing the basic space traffic management. The government, the military infrastructure that is there to do space surveillance is heavily taxed right now, given the amount of commercial payloads that are going in. And we still don't have a comprehensive picture of every orbital regime in the cadence we need to keep things from literally running into each other. Now you add the layer on top of it, which is national security or protecting critical infrastructure. That is a game that we are not built infrastructure. We we don't have the infrastructure to protect the infrastructure in space. You know, that's the way I would put it. 
And as far as, you know, obviously, well, I say obviously, I'm going to say it twice. Uh, It's obvious what aspects of our day-to-day life that you mentioned relies on space networks, i.e. GPS and cell phones. But what other areas that, you know, may even intersect with some other critical, critical infrastructures in the nation do we rely on space networks to provide, whether it's just making sure everything keeps running or is the backbone of that critical infrastructure itself? Yeah, I think you made a good point with GPS and also internet. But, you know, they're simple things, right? A backbone would be weather. We don't want people to get hurt by weather events like, you know, name it hurricanes, thunderstorms, uh, tornadoes. So that is a backbone infrastructure. A lot of our natural resources, for example, that we, we, we rely on on the earth, you know, these are slow moving things, but we, we critically use space for remote sensing purposes. And if you go more into the critical infrastructure, for example, our national security assets in space, an asset on the earth, right, is protected by fences with armed guards, cybersecurity, they have hardened how much ever they could. And there's also the the cybersecurity, there's also the physical security and those kind of things, right, you know, maybe there's this, you know, we've definitely hardened our satellites or the way we communicate with them, but there's no physical safety over there. Our adversary can maneuver in the middle of the day next to a, a high-valuable asset in space and carry out their activity uh, because we can't see them during the daytime because the sun is up with our regular space surveillance telescope. So we need assets in space watching our critical assets in space, our satellites that are doing space surveillance in orbit, uh, things like that. And having those assets up there to protect the already expensive assets, uh, that sounds like it's going to cost some money there. So if you want to maybe pretend that I'm a budget guard that you are trying to convince, hey, this is worth the money, what would you tell them? Uh, that's a very good point. Even even you know us living in the in probably the greatest nation on earth, the United States, money is is something that we have to be careful about because it is taxpayer money. We are, we want to be good stewards of it. And I think the 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 military has taken a slightly different approach, which is rather than building these big satellites like you know the Battlestar Galactica size satellites that will last last ten twenty years, uh, they're distributing the threat. So now every commercial payload could be accessed by, say, for our military needs, for that matter, uh, or all these mega constellations that are going up, like the Starlings, the, the Kuiper, the OneWeb, uh, all these could have payloads on them. So suddenly the adversary, instead of trying to target one high-value asset, has 30,000 satellites that are carrying out the mission in a very... Di- you distribute the risk, basically, you know? And so that is a, an inexpensive way of kind of building resilience into the system rather than trying to have a $5 billion satellite being protected by another $5 billion satellite that has a backup, another $5 billion satellite. You take advantage of the the, the mega constellations that are going up and also the smaller payloads, you know, not necessarily CubeSat, but something like small sat uh, size things and then having payloads on them that you can quickly launch. And that way you, it gives you layers of resilience that, you normally wouldn't have if you have one large asset. I think the one large asset days are quickly coming to an end. And they made sense when we we thought space as a benign environment and we were primarily looking at it. There are no bad guys in space. You know, everybody's here to do whatever they're doing to help help their own nations. But now we have adversaries who are actively challenging that the norm that we had for you know over 50 years. And so I think distributing the risk is the way. We do it in a cost-effective way, and also it makes sense, you know what I mean, to do it that way. 
Yeah, and in all the examples that we've been kind of not specific, but been thrown back and forth, it seems as if we're discussing non-nation state actors. But is there precious territory in space that we'll be vying with our near peer competitors for? Are there areas in space that, you know, hey, if if you want to have a functional satellite network, you have to have a presence, you know, in this sector or, or, or area of low Earth orbit. Is that sort of how it works? And if that's the case, are we going to have to do some negotiating? Obviously, we will. But are we going to have to do a little bit strong arming just to make sure what we have up there is is safe in the spot that it's in already? Yeah, that's a very good question. We, we rarely talk about something called orbital capacity. You know, how many satellites can we put in an orbit? Despite the fact that space is, as we consider as infinite, there is a capacity to how many satellites you can put in before it becomes a challenge to keep them there. And so we definitely have to think about with this mega constellations going up, these are commercial payloads primarily. What is the capacity of these orbits? And, and, and mind you, like, like you rightly pointed out, our competitors, right, potential adversaries, they also have aspirations to have their own mega constellations in similar orbital regimes. So it becomes an important thing where we have to find a path forward, whether it's collaborating where we can collaborate uh, and strong arming where we can, where we can't. You know what I mean? Uh, that that becomes a, a valid option on the table. But I, I believe that anything bad happening in space is going to affect everybody. You're not going to win by destroying your satellite or your adversary satellite because the debris is going to affect everybody. So I think it's it's very important that this is sorted out sitting face-to-face and rather than trying to do it through a strong army, you know what I mean, for lack of a better word. So I, I believe that we should try and figure out a path forward. Now, if you if you take take the, the same equation much further out, for example, you'd go to GEO, obviously there are specific orbital slots that are very precious. You know, they haven't been too precious, but we're getting to a point it gets crowded. And it, there's an important reason why we want to move derelict satellites or satellites that are at the end of their life into a graveyard orbit so that they don't interfere or intersect uh, with active satellites that are currently there. And also it empties that our orbital slot so that new satellites could be launched. So that's definitely an issue. And if you go even further out, as we venture into cislunar space, definitely the resources on the moon are limited. There are only specific spots on the moon where uh, we have things like water ice and permanent shadow regions in the poles. And that becomes definitely, you're going to have a real estate war over there eventually, maybe not immediately, but 50, 100 years from now, it's a finite amount. You know, once you park yourself in a certain sweet spot and you, you're mining the resources, it becomes that much challenging for, a, for a somebody coming, say, five or 10 years later uh, after the First Nation gets there and then try and find a location. So it's very important that we not only get there first, but get to the right spot first so that we can we can claim access to those resources and build an infrastructure that is open to the free world. You mentioned it earlier how we used to kind of think there are no no adversaries in space, and that was sort of projected because of everybody just wanted to explore, and it was seen as taking the next step for humanity and the planet in general, and it was really one of the only ways that we had for interacting with, you know, the Soviet Union and China and people who we don't usually collaborate with. And I'm curious if you, in your role and, you know, in speaking with, 
your counterparts in the with our near peer competitors, if you still get that sense that everybody does want to explore and we're not quite yet there where we're saying, hey, I saw it first. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's a that's that's a good question. There are areas we do collaborate relatively closely. I wouldn't say very closely, but there are restrictions uh, for using federal funds to work with folks in China, for example. But we do work with them through another part of my life, which is planetary defense. You know, we work uh, very closely with our colleagues in China and Russia on something called the International Asteroid Warning Network. It's called IWAN uh, it, because there the threat is global, right? Uh, a 50, 100 meter rock headed towards the earth is going to cause global damage. It's not like we're going to be more affected than say China or Russia, or they're going to be more affected than us. You know, it's a common, for lack of a better word, enemy or a threat. So we all band together to work and solve that issue. And I think that's very important because any day we sit across the table with our adversaries is a good day and because we're not fighting a war with them. So definitely there are areas we collaborate on. And I think they also see, see you know, as much as there is a competition to race to the moon and uh, secure and build an infrastructure over there, there is a sense of realization that the challenges we face uh, with tracking objects not just in geo, but you know, especially in cislunar space, it affects them as well. You know, it's not like it uniquely affects only U.S. spacecraft or U.S. assets. It affects them as well, and so they have to be mindful of it. And so there, there might be a way we have to keep talking because, in the end, irrespective of whether we have a conflict or not, we'll end up talking to resolve the conflict. Usually, that that's how it works out. Got it. And bringing it back to the here and now and protecting what's already up there. Finishing up, just curious on what you think of your role and the private sector's role and the government's role and how collaboration in that capacity could work. Obviously, the government has an interest in protecting its citizenry and uh, the private sector has an interest in protecting its highly valuable assets. And uh, where do you all fit in in that mold? Yeah, I think academia is kind of like the third pillar of of this this whole effort to to solve this problem. Uh, and and the reason being is that we literally are paid to think uh, out of the box. That's that's what we do, and we probably have the the fresh and the brightest minds in the country in terms of our students, and that gives us the the opportunity and the 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 the, the responsibility to find innovative solution to these problems. And at the University of Arizona, we just started a new center called the Space Safety, Security, and Sustainability Center. Uh, it's a $10 million uh, investment from the state of Arizona to tackle this challenge. And uh, I, I am the uh, director of it, along with uh, colleagues from different uh, uh, units within on, on campus, from engineering, from law, from optical science. We have uh, faculty and students from across campus trying to tackle these very challenges we just spoke about. How do we go about securing our orbital assets, not just from adversarial nations, but also from the debris that are generated by a number of events, whether it's collisions, whether it's new launches, uh, whether it's anti-satellite tests. So how do we go about making this, uh, the, the whole space environment safe, secure, and actually sustainable for future use, whether it is for commercial use, academic use, or national security use. And so that's where we come into play we have a mandate to develop the software infrastructure, which is usually not something that is uh, looked upon. Uh, we believe, you know, we probably have more telescopes pointed at the sky than any entity on the planet. We have more glass looking at the, at the universe 
uh, at the University of Arizona than any other entity on the planet. But at the same time, we need to have the software side of things to crunch those data that we get back from these telescopes and sensors. So that's what we're focused on at the Space Force Center. And we're hoping that some of the things we're doing would eventually enable us to solve some of these problems or get closer to that. Vishnu Reddy is professor of planetary sciences at the University of Arizona. There's more to this interview. You can find it at federalnewsnetwork.com. Search the Space Hour. For our next segment, there's been a ton of money invested in the commercial space industry, but those early investment dollars are starting to dwindle. You're listening to the Space Hour on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White. 